Okay, if you have a Bible, uh, would you like to turn to the book of Revelation, as Mark mentioned earlier? And uh, you can be finding chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow in a copy of one, just raise a hand and one will be brought to you. Just keep it up. And um, what I'm about to say might not interest many of you, but there's a bit of a hum on the stage. The foldback speakers are loudly buzzing in my ears. Okay, we're going to look at Revelation 4. And um, doesn't get much better than Revelation chapter 4. I just want to say that. that this, we are about to go into a wonderful, awesome piece of scripture. Let's read chapter 4 together. After this, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night... They never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So like I say, we're in a wonderful place this morning. We have looked in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation at the messages, the prophetic messages, that Jesus wanted to share with seven churches in, in modern day uh, Turkey, and we understand that those seven churches, in a sense, kind of represent all of us, every church, and we can all receive uh, words of wisdom, words of encouragement, and words of warning and instruction from what God says, what Jesus says to those seven churches. It's as if, in those chapters, Jesus is saying, right church, you, you need to see heaven's perspective. The church needs to receive how heaven sees the church. And we could have just left it there and moved on to a new series. 
But obviously, Jesus didn't leave it there when he was giving these visions to John. It's like, yeah, you, you've needed to see. Here's heaven's perspective on the church. And now, Jesus, as it were, is saying to the church, church, now you need to see something. You need to see, you need to get a perspective of heaven. Heaven sees the church, but now the church has been encouraged. You need to come. Come up here, a voice says. This voice that first spoke to John, that's Jesus' voice. Like a trumpet blast, come up here. In other words, Jesus saying, I've got something else for you to see. It's right that we give our attention to the church, but now Jesus throws open the door into heaven so that John and so that we can see into there. It's like a curtain just being drawn back, something being unveiled, something being revealed. This is, of course, the book of Revelation, where God wants to reveal things. And so what is he revealing here? He is revealing heaven itself. God's dwelling place. Now, for God's people in the Old Testament, in the, under the Old Covenant, there was a dwelling place on earth that when God's people were in the wilderness, was the tabernacle, uh, a tent that could be moved around with them, where God's presence was manifest. And Solomon then, when uh, they were established in the land, uh, Solomon built a temple. And there are all these different courts, but you got right, well, Right at the centre of the temple was the place that was called the Most Holy Place. And it was so holy that not just anyone could go in there. The only person who could go into the Most Holy Place was the High Priest. And the High Priest could only go in there, not kind of just willy-nilly every day, but only on one day a year, the Day of, day of Atonement. So holy, the presence of God. That's what God's people under the old covenant understood but they understood this as well that that place, the temple it was only an earthly copy of something else more glorious it was only as it were just an earthly representation of the real deal and the real deal is God's dwelling place in heaven and here as it were God is drawing back the curtain and saying you might be familiar with the heavenly copy, but now I want to show you, the earthly copy rather, now I want to show you the heavenly reality. God's presence. Now, Paul writes to the Colossians, and he says this, in Colossians uh, chapter 3, and uh, from verse 1. Paul writes, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your mind on things above. That's what Paul says to the Colossians. That's in a sense what God is saying to his church here through John recalling this vision. Set your mind, set your hearts on things above. Now there's a, there's a phrase or a kind of saying that we're very familiar with. Um, kind of referring to someone who is so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use. 
And uh, maybe uh, you might think you've met someone like that, kind of interested in spiritual things just as a way of avoiding reality, just as a way of kind of maybe sticking one's head in the sand in terms of what life involves here. And oh, just away with the fairies might be another way of, uh, of, of saying it. But here it's saying, no, that, this is not the vision that, that, that John has here. No, we are to be heavenly minded. And as we, are, as we have our minds set on things above, as we have our whole kind of heart and spirit set on what is real about heaven, actually we become very useful on the earth um, because of what we see. So, what do we see? We're going to ask three questions as we look through this vision today to help us to set our minds on things above, to help us to set our minds on heavenly things. First question, just very generally, is this. As we stand back, look at the big picture of this vision, we can ask ourselves the question, what is heaven life? What is, what is heaven like? What is heaven like? And really that's just an opportunity to say a few general things. Heaven, God's dwelling place, is utterly incredible. I think as John is writing this, writing up this experience, he's searching for words, but words are kind of failing to do justice to explain the wonder of what he's seeing, of what he's just seen. He has had an experience in the spirit so overwhelming, his, his senses are overcome. And so he's searching for a way of communicating that, which will do justice to the impact that it's had on him. It's like, you know, unfortunately, we've had a summer that's involved a lot of rain. And let's say you are caught out Let's say you've been caught out in the rain recently. Has anyone been caught out in torrential rain? Uh, praise God. Um, how do you describe that afterwards? You could say, but it would be fairly matter of fact, today it rained a lot. Now, we know what you mean, but that might not carry the, kind of, the full sense of the impact that this had upon you right at the point where you were outside and it was raining quite a lot. You might seek to find like a scientific way of explaining it. You might say, well, I was outside and you know what? 20 millimetres of rain fell in a two-hour period and that equals 75% of the average monthly precipitation for the month of July. Right. In other words, it rained quite a lot. Well, is there some other way of saying it? Another way, perhaps, of saying it would be for someone who had this kind of experience. Today, I stepped out of the door and before I could say, oh, doesn't the Niagara Falls look really pretty today? It was like I got hugged by a waterfall and the waterfall decided not to let go. It rains a lot. And sometimes we get aware of familiar phrases like, it was raining so hard, it was raining cats and dogs. What does that mean? It's just raining a lot, and it's totally a bizarre picture. Um, and that's kind of what's going on here. It's, it's language that's apocalyptic. It's not scientific. It's, he's trying 
the best language you can find to richly say just how incredible heaven is. So he doesn't describe it scientifically. He's not describing, as it were, a precise photograph. He's just saying, wow, it's amazing. And so he searches for ways of saying it. And there, there are a few hints of just how amazing heaven is. That's kind of what he sees. And what he sees actually is incredibly colourful. And so we've got reference here to jasper and carnelian and a rainbow that resembled an emerald. And it's like, there's just amazing colour. It's difficult to be precise on what those precious stones were, but it's thought that the colour scheme was, was, um, was kind of bright white, red and green. So it would keep the Italians happy in heaven. But it's this kind of vibrant display of colour. It says in 1 John, God is light. And here we kind of get an impression of what that means. It's not boring. This is totally dazzling and astounding. It's incredibly light. We also have these um, flashes of lightning in verse 5. This is an incredible experience. So it's colourful. It's also noisy. It says there are flashes of lightning, and obviously with lightning goes rumblings and peals of thunder. You know, if a thunderstorm is close, you know about it. You, you see it, you hear it, but you also feel it. It has, it has impact. And there are other places in Scripture where we see this, where God speaks to Job. In Job 38 verse 1, it says... God spoke to Job in the storm. It's like God was speaking and it's, it's shaking. Thunder and lightning. And there are other places in Exodus 19 where God comes down on Mount Sinai to speak with Moses and there's thunder and there's lightnings and there's rumbling. It's like nobody needed to say at that point, I think God's here. It was obvious. God in his presence came down in these palpable, powerful, awesome ways. And so, we also see in chapter 4, that almost like the volume increases. There's this thunder and lightning, but there's also, as we'll see in a bit, these, these different songs. There's singing and chapters 4 and chapter 5, they're part of the same vision. And all the way through chapter 4 and 5, it's like one big, huge crescendo. It's like, it just gets louder and louder. Now, if you go forward to chapter 8 in Revelation, you do also see that for half an hour there was silence. So it's, but it's almost like silence isn't the norm. There's just awesome singing and a thunderstorm, and it's, it's just breathtaking, it's absolutely overwhelming. John can't quite describe what's going on. Let's just be clear, though, that in heaven there's no suffering, so nobody has a headache. This is incredible. It's glorious. Now, is that our view of heaven? How do we picture heaven? Maybe you're here today, and you don't even believe there is a heaven. Well, what is the heaven that you don't believe in like? 
Because is it bland? Is it boring? Is it dull? Is it like going to the library? Is it like the equivalent of just having to go and do your homework? Just, oh, what are we going to do for eternity? I don't know. Um, what is that our view of heaven? Like watching a black and white movie. When I was young, about, maybe, I don't know, about six, it takes a while sometimes for the penny to drop on certain things, doesn't it? So, uh, I go around to grandparents' house and maybe we'd, we'd look through their, their photo album from yesteryear and black and white photos of a wedding that took place in 1945. And, uh, you know, maybe watch really old, you know, old classic films, but when you're six, they're just boring. What's going on? I don't understand. Whatever. Um, just give me Transformers. Um, and so, you know, you're almost tempted to say to Grandma and Granddad, what was it like? What's it like all those years ago to, to live in black and white? <laughs> what was going, when did life come in colour? And we can look back and think that. We can look at, look at heaven and think, well now, we see kind of colours. You know, life here is, is rich, it's full of meaning. And there's, we can we go to a concert or, you know, we can see some really colourful stuff and think, well that's, that's like really happening, but, but heaven, that's dull. That's life, you know, what's there? I can't quite imagine it. And, and so pictures are of just such serenity that it just looks dull. This is boring. Well, let's allow our minds and our hearts and our understanding of what glory will be like be shaped by what we see here and be shaped by what John saw. Heaven is vivid. When we get to glory in heaven, we will then look back and we will see our, our life on earth as a, as a pale poor version of life. Then we'll see fully. And now we see kind of through a, dark, a, a glass darkly. But then we'll see face to face. You know, even now for the human eye, there's colours that we can't see in the colour spectrum. Ultraviolet and all the rest of it. But, so it's almost like that sense, that, just that hint. Yeah, we see colour now, but really we don't see anything yet. Heaven is gloriously far above. So, is that what we set our minds on? You read that scripture in Colossians, is that what we are to fix our minds on? Let's try and imagine, right, okay, set our minds on things above, heaven's really colourful, it's really lively, it's really bright, it's full of awesome wonder. Well, that's not all there is to say, but it's a good place to start. So we say, well, well why do we have this passage of scripture? I think it's to cause us just to begin to wonder and marvel about what is to come. That's for starters. But what else? Is, I mean, is that what we're just to focus on? Well, our second question is this. What, what is the focus of heaven? If we're to set our minds on things that are above, if we're to kind of focus our, our, our thinking and our hearts on heaven, well, what is heaven actually focused on? What is the focus of heaven? And we see it here in this passage unmistakably because there's, there's one thing that dominates this chapter and these two chapters in a sense. 
There's one thing that's referred to in chapter 4 a total of 10 times, a total of 15 times throughout the two chapters together. And what is that thing? What dominates is the throne of God. In verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. In a sense, the vision to the, ch- uh, the message to the church in Laodicea leads into this because it says at the end of chapter 3 in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I'll give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And that kind of then leads us on into this glorious vision. Well, what's the focus of all heaven? It's this throne. And this is in fact what John really, really needed to see. John, remember, if you look back to chapter 1, is imprisoned on the island of Patmos for his faith. Life at this point in time when John was writing was not easy for Christians. And there was an emperor, Domitian, who was winning no prizes for godliness. And he was winning no prizes for showing kindness to God's people. In fact, the opposite is true. John banished in exile onto the island of Patmos. Some of these churches really, really going through the mill. And for the church in Smyrna, it's about to get worse. And for the church in per- they're all going through the mill one way or another. They're all experiencing the pressure of being God's people in an evil world. So John really needed to see the throne of God. And in fact we see throughout scripture there are other occasions where God gives to a prophet a vision of heaven and again, what's the focus? God's throne. I'll mention a few of them. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple and he sees living creatures around the throne. There's Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel's vision. And it's amazing to see the similarities. Um, And there's Daniel Daniel chapter 7, where again Daniel sees a vision of horrific, monstrous kingdoms rising up. But then he sees the Ancient of Days seated on his throne. The books were opened and those kingdoms were dealt with. There's someone on the throne. And so what, what runs through as kind of a common thread is God reveals his throne in vision when God's people on earth are in tough times. Maybe there's a king in Israel who really isn't worthy of being a king. Maybe actually full of pride, not doing things God's way. So to be God's people is a difficult environment. Or actually, for Daniel, for Ezekiel, God's people have been taken into exile. It's not an easy time. And so then, what does God reveal? God reveals his throne at times of unrest, at times of crisis, at times when the church can feel threatened, at times when the church can feel intimidated, at times when there's someone on a throne being completely ungodly, like Emperor Domitian, 
stuff's going on in life that is producing powerful feelings of insecurity in God's people. And so this vision comes as a powerful antidote to that feeling of insecurity. Somehow it feels that life is running out of control. I don't quite know what's happening. I don't quite understand why life is like this at the moment. This is not easy. This is not enjoyable. But God comes and says, just come up here. Come up here. You need to see something else now. Let me draw you aside from what's going on in the life of the church. I'm going to share with you my perspective on what's going on. But also, you need to come up with me. You need to see this. You need your vision to be focused on what's here in chapters 4 and chapter 5. In a sense, don't just leave it with chapters 1, 2 and 3. Come, come on. Come a little bit further. Look, in your life it can appear like evil is on the throne or illness is on the throne or just a complete puzzle is going on. Come up here and see the one and the only throne to which every other throne is accountable. See the one and only throne that doesn't just rule over this little area here or this period of life there. Come and see the one and only throne from which God rules over all things. And there are times when God's people need to know God is in control. God is sovereign over all of this. However puzzling things may seem, God is on the throne. He created everything by his pleasure, by his will, he created them. And because everything is created for the will and pleasure of God, he is going to bring everything through. Ultimately, everything will fulfil the purposes that God has set out. We are seeing here, in a sense, a vision of what is true right now, a vision of what has always been true, but also, very importantly, a vision of what will be true. When everything comes to this final concluding point of history, here's where it's going to end. Here is where it's going to focus. Where, as we'll see, every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess. Here's God, and here's God who's in control. Sometimes things can seem a mystery, but we're being invited. Come on, church. Set your minds on things above. It's like if you go to an airport, a busy airport terminal, and perhaps you're even able to, to get outside, or you have, you're just kind of looking around and you think, there's so much going on, it's so, it's so busy, it's kind of so frantic, there's so many things happening here that I don't understand, but then you're invited up into the control room. And you see, oh, okay, I still don't understand absolutely everything. All these different vehicles that are moving around on the tarmac, all these different people doing different jobs. Um, but I can see things a little bit more clearly now. 
because I can see that everything that's happening out here in this huge airport is coordinated from this control tower. It's kind of happening for a reason. Um, Everything is being coordinated and that's what we're being invited to look at here. God is on the throne. What is fascinating, however, is then the lack of detail about the one who is on the throne. It's kind of tantalising. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. We, we get this description, these precious stones, this kind of display of lights. But it just remains this God who is the one who sat on the throne. We don't get much more detail about what he looked like. And I almost get the impression that it's like John was invited into heaven. He saw this. But what he's, the, the one he sees seated on the throne is so glorious, he can't really look there for long. It's almost like on a bright summer's day, you can't look at the sun for very long. Because there comes a point where you have to avert your eyes because it's so bright. And it's almost as if John has been invited into heaven, but what he sees is so tremendous that he gets a flavour, he gets a, a glimpse, as it were, that he, his eyes are then taken to actually what surrounds the throne. And he begins with this, with this rainbow, but then he sees other things that are happening. So, what is the focus of heaven? It's, it's, the, it's the throne, it's the one who's seated on the throne, But this kind of leads on to our our third question. What is happening around the throne? Because actually we learn about who God is and how great he is by seeing what is taking a place around. So we see the throne, but then it's almost like the picture broadens out, zooms out to see what's happening around the throne. So what is happening around the throne? God draws John's attention to what God is like by seeing what takes place around the throne. And as we'll see, what, what is happening is an awesome kind of account of unrestrained, completely abandoned worship. It's been said, no part of scripture is more calculated to evoke worship than these two chapters, chapters 4 and chapters 5 of John's prophecy. No part of scripture more calculated to evoke worship because that's what we see taking place. And almost as as the vision just takes one step further back from the throne, we first of all see the four living creatures. And they're strange. The four... Living creatures, it says in uh, kind of the second part of verse 6 onwards, in the centre around the throne, there were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. And we've got to be careful when we're dealing with 
numbers and symbols and just these, these really vivid images that we're not quick to say absolutely precisely who they are and what this means. In the sense that I think part of this is here, again, just to make us go, wow. Again, John's not taken a, a photograph of heaven for his holiday book. He's, he's seen stuff, he's communicating to us. He chooses to present it in, in this way. We've been invited into a mystery and even at the end of the day, this is going to remain slightly mysterious. But here's best tentative suggestion about these four living creatures. They are angelic beings that surround the throne and they represent in some way the whole of earthly creation. We see the reference to uh, different animals and it's been said that you know, one is like a lion. Well, the, the lion is the greatest of all wild animals. We see an ox the ox is the greatest and the strongest of all domesticated animals. The, uh, the eagle is the greatest of the birds, the, the mightiest, the most awesome of birds. And man, the most awesome in all God's creation. And so here they are, these, these angelic beings, as it were, four of them, like the four points of the compass or the four corners of the world, representing... God's creation and doing what all of, crea- all of God's creation should be doing. They are, as it says, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so then we get our first kind of another Peace of understanding. Who is it that sits on the throne? It's not a tyrant. It's not a despot like Emperor Domitian or King Nebuchadnezzar or any other evil king or just earthly king. The one who's seated on the throne of heaven is holy, holy, holy. He is good. He's utterly pure and perfect. We can approach him, as we know, by God's grace, but that doesn't mean that he's like us. He's separate from us. He's other to us. And again, that's one suggestion about what this sea of glass is about. It's almost like a sense of, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a separation. God's holiness is such that he's beyond our natural reach. He's God. He's holy. In a way that we'll never be able to get our minds fully around. And isn't it amazing to see These angelic beings who are constantly before the throne, bear this in mind, they've never sinned. They have no personal knowledge or experience of sinning or rebelling against God. And so even in their own way, we could say those four living creatures are perfect. 
But they have a constant, ongoing revelation. Day and night, they are always struck by how holy and perfect God is. Isn't that totally mind-blowing? God's holiness is not just the absence of sin. It's not like God is in heaven with his chums that he's on a par with. Even the perfect angels are recognising something there, recognising that God is holy. Now, bizarrely, these creatures also have six wings and they are completely covered with eyes. In other words, these, these creatures are all seeing. I just have two eyes. We have just two eyes. I find it incredibly easy to be distracted. And even dare I say it, I find it sometimes worryingly easy how easy I I can be distracted in worship. Lord, I'm here for you. Oh, the lights. Aren't they pretty? Or, oh, today we've got different lights. Um, Or, or whatever. Or, or, oh yeah, so and so's wearing that T-shirt. It's just just ridiculous. Two eyes, and I can I can be distracted. Those living creatures have a lot of eyes. They see everything. If they wanted to, they could scour the whole world, the whole universe, to find what's really impressive around here. They could be just distracted by everything. And what are they doing? They are completely distracted by God. They're completely focused on him. And so these four living creatures, they are revealing something to us of the sheer holiness of God. What else is happening around the throne? Again, the vision just takes one step further back. We see the kind of, the next group. It's the 24 elders. 24 elders who have themselves each uh, have 24 thrones one each they're dressed in white have crowns of gold on their heads and so we then read whenever the living creatures in verse 9 give glory honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and again tentative in suggesting who these are but these would appear to be angelic beings also that don't represent the whole of God's creation. In a sense, it would appear that they represent all of God's people. And the clue is in the number 24. In the Old Covenant, there were 12 tribes, headed, if you like, by 12 patriarchs. In the New Covenant, 12 apostles, the kind of the foundation of the church. 12 plus 12, you get the picture. Angelic angelic beings kind of representing all of God's people. Rather than being a depiction of God's people themselves, because later on in chapter 5, these uh, elders sing a song that refers to, in verse 9, from every tribe... Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. So 
they refer to all of God's people who have been one as them rather than us. An indication that we are seeing angelic beings rather than the twelve apostles and the heads of the twelve tribes. Well, what are they doing? And again, we see something wonderful in what they sing. What they sing reveals, or what they say, reveals something else about what God is like. Verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God. Interestingly, our Lord and God is thought to be a title that Emperor Domitian took for himself. And heaven is saying, oh no you don't, that's for me. God's saying, no, I am Lord and God. These 24 elders are saying, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You created everything, you had a purpose for everything, you will bring everything through to conform to your purpose and will, and actually for us, again, that brings wonderful security. That sense of, yeah, God didn't just create and then abandon. God, God didn't just create and then lose control. No, you're worthy. And you created all things by your will. They were created and have their being. What they sing demonstrates what is true. God is holy and God is worthy. We live in a culture now that kind of says, you're worth it. Uh, you're the most important person in the world. Be the centre of your own universe. No, don't. Raise your minds. Let your minds, let your hearts be lifted to where God is seated on a throne. Let's allow our preoccupation to be this awesome God who's always holy and always worthy of our praise. So these elders sing. But what I found fascinating is what they also do. And what they do totally matches up with what they sing. These 24 elders each have a throne. They're quite close to God's throne. They're dressed in white and they have uh, crowns of gold on their head. In other words, they have an important and privileged position. What do they do with their position? What do they do with their throne? They leave the throne. They leave their throne. And they bow down. And what do they do with their crown? Their reward? What do they do with kind of the thing that maybe gives them glory? They take it off. And they gladly put it at the feet of the one who's worthy of all praise. It's almost like their closeness, their proximity to God on the throne in heaven is not about them having the opportunity to feel good about themselves and say, hey, look at me. Their worship is not a display of themselves. Yet, they have an incredible position And what do they do? They abandon it. And they acknowledge, no, only 
you, Lord God, are worthy of praise. Only you are worthy of honour. No part of scripture is more calculated to evoke worship than these two chapters. What is our response to all this? Well, what is heaven like? It's incredible. What do we do? We marvel and we wonder about what is to come. And maybe even we do try and imagine, probably as, uh, as little as we can get our heads around, what a glorious place heaven is and will be when we see him face to face. What is the focus of heaven? The focus of heaven is God on his throne. What do we do? We trust God. We trust the God who's in control, even of times which are puzzling. We, are, we allow ourselves to be nourished in the midst of insecurity by a God whose throne is never insecure. What's happening around the throne? Ongoing, unstopping, unrestrained, totally abandoned worship. What do we do? Well, we are going to do it right now. I'm going to invite the bands to come to lead us again. How, how do we respond? Well, we've seen the activity that was taking place around the throne, showing us, as it were, what all of God's creation should be doing and especially what God's people should be doing now and forever. And one person has made this kind of comment, they've shown again that this is to remind us, when the church gathers together, the church comes to worship and in a sense the church comes, we come to remind ourselves of who God is, and we come to remind ourselves also, therefore, of who we are. We are, kind of, if you like, an outpost of heaven. And we want all that we do to reflect what little we understand of what's taking place in heaven. I hope we feel a sense Something today being evoked. And in a sense, the rest of our time this morning, let's just all respond to our wonderful God. There may be specific responses. This is still a time where it's totally appropriate to then pray out, come and share, whatever. We want to respond to who our wonderful God is. So let's stand. Let's raise our voices. Let's give him our all attention. He's our wonderful holy God. We love him. He's worthy of every worship we can give him. Let's honour him right now.